Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Oh, yes, it's true. Welcome into Downtown, the podcast. It's episode number 217. Rich Kimball with you, along with Carrie Haskell. Downtown is brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, well, we've got a couple interesting conversations. I say that every week, but, well, we sincerely feel that way. Uh, two good ones this week, a second half of the program. We talk with actor, producer, director, Derek's Brady, who stars in the Bounce TV series, Johnson. Season two just got underway this past weekend. You can check it out on Bounce TV. And we'll talk about uh, some of the other highlights of his career as well, including uh, working with uh, Al Pacino and much more. Up first, though, one of our favorites to talk with from Defector.com and the co-host of the Distraction Podcast. Always an interesting conversation when we check up with our friend David Roth here on Downtown. You're just back from your your visit to Maine, and I loved your description of Maine uh, on the Distraction, and I think this is perfect. Rocky Coast's Older Men in Overalls. Yeah, you get both. Uh, very few places can do both. Uh, I got to see a little bit of both of those things. Uh, this was more of a sort of a business trip than a vacation. We were up uh, to see my father-in-law, and he's a he's retired, um, a retired Portland fireman uh, who now does antique stuff. A lot of that um, now involves just compiling massive amounts of things that he gets at the transfer stations all across Hancock County. So there was a lot of moving of boxes and uh, some light scrap metal moving uh, involved, which was good. It was like a sort of a, a extremely exurban version of CrossFit. So I came back feeling feeling lean and toned and uh, grateful to have <laughs> had a little bit of an opportunity to do stuff like that, but not too much. Yeah, it's nice to feel like you're helping out. Yeah, and in this case, it's like he is a passionate guy about stuff. He knows a lot about it. He's very interested in it. He's just way more interested in getting uh, than in selling it. And so my wife and I were trying to, he's starting a, opening a little shop on your aisle uh, where he lives and we helped him get some stuff set up. I think it's going to be very nice. It's just also, you know, this is one of the great things about Maine to me is that like every book that has ever entered the state is still in the state and for sale in various stages <laughs> of degradement. <laughs> and that is like, he's got some that are at the very end of their lives, but then there's also, you know, like, I guess it's a state that reads like every uh, transfer station that we went to had like the equivalent of a, a great free paperback bookstore in it. Like you can get a lot of like, you know, Sean Hannity books, but I also Oof. picked up, at the transfer station in Surrey, Maine, a copy of Klaus Kinski's autobiography, which was Whoa. like so crazy that it was instantly out of print. So it's wild that such a thing uh, ever made it up there in the first place. And now I have it. Well, see, if you got it in Surrey, that's close enough. That's close enough to where John Hodgman hangs out that I bet he left it there. It probably, you know, we actually had that thought because we, the second time that we went back there, this is what. I'm happy to do dump chat the whole time if you want. By the way. <laughs> this is way better than anything else I got on my mind. Uh, the second time that we went by there, somebody who had a very good collection of like contemporary fiction was clearly just you know realizing that they needed more space for other stuff. And so if it if it turns out that I have like 
John Hodgman's collection of like every novel that Joshua Ferris wrote that he abruptly decided he didn't want anymore. Like it would be my honor. Also, it wouldn't surprise me that much. Wow. Now I wonder if this is just coincidence as several reports that uh, Mike Wolf of American Pickers was in down East Maine this past weekend. Really? Yeah. That is something that my father-in-law would be extremely excited to know about. He's got, he doesn't watch that much TV. I mean, I know he knows the American Pickers guys, but he's got a whole series of like YouTube channels that he watches. He seems to have sort of cracked the algorithm such that he's the one person that can watch YouTube for five hours and he's not getting recommended Ben Shapiro videos or like things that are trying to turn him fascist. Like they've just figured out that what he wants is a video where a bunch of guys um, with metal detectors go into a bog and talk about what they find. And he'll just watch that in endlessly. Uh, and it's kind of, you know, as again, as things that you could find online go, like it, there's sure a lot less wholesome stuff than that. Now, did he watch uh, my, my in-laws were very excited for me to watch this. Uh, it's sort of the main version of American Pickers. I think it was only on for a season or two, something called Downey's Dickering. Yeah, he knew about it. Uh, Downey's Dickering sounds like, like, you know, the skit that gets cut from an episode of Saturday Night Live. Right. But like, you know, at rehearsal, they're like, no one understands what you're saying. man. The accents are too much. I'm afraid that we're going to have to remove it from show. Uh, but I know that Downey's Dickering was real. And that was basically... I mean, it was what it sounds like, right? It was like going to yard sales and being like, I'm interested in this aluminum that you've got, but not at this price. And then they just figure it out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, yes, it was, um, it was American pickers with uh, guys who talked like Tom Bosley in Murder, She Wrote. It's <laughs> a real winning elevator pitch. Like, I'm willing to commit to another couple of seasons just on my own dime now. I'd like to be able to shoot it, though. <laughs> Uh, well, apparently the uh, pickers are coming back in the fall. So tell your dad to keep an eye open this October. Yeah, I think that uh, this is, you know, like that part of the season would be when it would be good to sort of come through. Because I think we were there. So this is the earliest that we've been up in what like sort of qualifies as the summer season. So most of the time that we were up there, there really weren't uh, a lot of places were closed and there weren't, you know, as, as much of a presence of you know, sort of tourists, as I imagine will be the case during the summer. But it seems like there's going to be a lot of people around there. Like, it, the like, ambiently, like, all the people that we talk to, and certainly, like, you know, like Wally and all of his buddies and stuff, that it seems like it, maybe this is a bounce-back vacation season for the state. Uh, I mean, I know we did our part, but, I mean, just in terms of clearing shelf space at the dump, mostly, uh, we didn't really buy that much. Well, I was down uh, on, on MDI this past weekend uh, with, to see my in-laws, and yeah, it sure seemed like there were a lot of out-of-state license plates. A whole lot of folks were back, so that's a good thing. Where were you on Mount Desert? Uh, Somesville. I we were there around the same time. I was in Winter Harbor. Ah, I, well, other side, Somesville, which is the, uh, I guess they call the quiet side of the island over near Southwest Harbor. Yeah, it's cool. I'm glad that we got to do that. The only reason we got to go to uh, Acadia Head Hall was that our flight got canceled out of um, Bangor going back. And so it was, you know, I was grumpy about it because I had to work on Sunday and I didn't want to have to do that from the house, you know, with my father-in-law and my wife around. Like I had, but mostly I was just grumpy sort of in the way that one would be when a flight gets canceled. And then it just occurred to me, it's like, well, that's like a whole free day in Maine. Like, and we didn't right. drive to the airport back either. So we were like, why don't we just do something that we like then, which is uh, 
go basically we we go to um Acadia so that my wife can go to the Dairy Queen in Ellsworth. But there is, you know, like there's some other steps to it that are nice and scenic, but it's important that we go to the Dairy Queen. But you must have earned some pretty solid son-in-law points for all this heavy lifting. I like to think I did. I don't know. I mean, I did my best. Like, but I think that there is like, that's a, that's part of the gig. It's the part of it that I have always sort of liked. I mean, certainly, um, I don't know how many more years like I've got as the like passively young person in any of these scenarios, but like it's a lot easier for me to go up and down stairs repeatedly uh, than it is for my father-in-law or for my own parents. So yeah, being able to be the person that's willing to, um, you know, carry one of those big plastic totes full of garbage that needs to be priced. Like, you know, I, it's, I like to think that I'm banking those points for later. I don't know when I'm going to need to redeem them. I'm sure I'll figure out something annoying to do. And then I'll be like, do you remember the time that I helped you carry that <laughs> broken desk to your car? Maybe, maybe I'll get some points out of that. <laughs> We're talking with David Roth here on downtown. Uh, I want to bring up a little sports here. Uh, your piece on Andrew McCutcheon and, uh, and furries uh, was, was fascinating <laughs> to me. And what is it? Anthrocon? Good Lord. Yeah. So this was, something that I, this was the post that I did on Sunday from uh, up there. So every year around this time, around July 4th, there is a massive furry convention in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, of all places. And apparently Pittsburgh is really warm to it. The furries love it. Uh, But it is big enough that every year when it happens, if the pirates are at home, the visiting baseball team winds up in a hotel with people uh, who are dressed as like whimsical unicorns or uh, sort of weirdly sexualized foxes. Like it's a very strange convention and apparently it's like pretty wholesome in its way, or at least, you know, the public facing part of it is wholesome, but it's not necessarily like what, uh, you know, (laughs) like Mike Matheny is not built to be near that. You know what I mean? There's certain guys that are just shouldn't be exposed to it. And so, Every year when McCutcheon, you know, who's a star in Pittsburgh and then has been back as a visitor, every time he is there when the furry convention is happening, he just tweets the word furries without any explanation. He's now done it three times. He did it uh, on Saturday of last week. And it's like kind of in its own way, like a, a tradition of his, like he's, there's no other comment. Like he's not ever followed it up and been like, are disgusting or like, I am one of them. He just leaves it out there and people react to it. But in putting that post together, I got the occasion to go back and look at the times that the convention has been mentioned by broadcasters who also wind up at these hotels. And there were two, there was one that I remembered, which was during a Mets broadcast, Keith Hernandez and Gary Cohen talking about it. <laughs> Keith Hernandez being like, they smelled so bad. I had to get off the elevator before my stop. Like this was, <laughs> it, was it was not negative, but it was uh, very visceral. And then I found one that I didn't know about, which is in 2007, at the very beginning of a Brewers-Pirates game, so that, like, the Brewers are up. This is the visiting half of the first. Right off the bat, Bob Uecker is like, so the furry convention is here this weekend, and just, it's 15 minutes of Bob Uecker free associating <laughs> while the color, the color commentator guy periodically asks scandalized questions. Some of it is Uecker being extremely, uh, like, sort of, like, even-handed and and sort of, you know, like he's not making fun of it necessarily. But then he slips in these bizarre deadpan gags that are, <laughs> I, I guess I had sort of forgotten just how great Bob Uecker is. 
that like the character that he is in Major League, I think he just does that on the air every Brewers game. Right. I think That's it's just, it's just without the booze. That's the only difference. Right. <laughs> Which is, yes, that he's like actually coming by it honestly. The bit that I remember from his monologue when he was talking about the convention was he was like laying out some of the actual stuff that they were doing, you know, and he's like, you know, so all the, the wolves will be there and they'll, you know, they'll all be together. And that's really great for them. Uh, you know, there's some different workshops. There's a banquet, I believe that is catered by Purina. And it just <laughs> kept it moving from there. <laughs> delightful stuff. All right. The local spinoff of that is, uh, I didn't know this was a thing. I was late to the party, but apparently on right wing websites and social media, this whole idea of furries spread to public schools and that um, there's this whole sort of uh, uh, yeah, back channel communication among parents that furries are everywhere in the schools. And and my guess is that this was sort of their crazy right wing reaction to to transgender kids in the schools. But it reached the point our superintendent had to had to be interviewed for the local newspaper to say in print no, we don't have litter boxes in our school classrooms for students who identify as cats. That does not happen. I, I remember seeing headlines to that effect. I didn't realize that was you all. Yeah. It might have been other districts, too, but I do remember that story because it was the kind of thing. I mean, so many of those stories are just obviously people winding each other up, you know, mm. in Facebook groups and stuff like that. But that one I remember being struck by because it was Sort of like that's not a thing that like even exists that like actual furries do, as far as I know. Like this is something that like a bunch of crackpots in Franklin, Tennessee, like made up themselves, and then somehow became a problem in Bangor, Maine, a month later. Yeah, that ugh, what a world. We really need to. I feel like a good idea would be uh, you should have to, like, not in the way, you know, red flag laws, it's going to be hard to sort of implement those in the places where they need to be implemented. I think it would be safer to do it, just that you shouldn't be able to log on to any social media platform unless uh, you can answer a few basic questions and pass a breath. <laughs> I, I would be all in favor of that, uh, absolutely. Uh, your Mets, despite everything, hanging in there. Yeah, they're they're kind of good. I've been... Working my way towards, uh, you know, <laughs> being okay with that. Uh, I've been, you know, obviously I've been hurt before, as every Mets fan <laughs> has. But there's something, this team feels a little bit different. I think that, uh, especially given that, you know, so far, and I'm going to just actually knock wood before I say this, that, like, it seems like Jacob deGrom is on the right sort of trajectory to come back right after the All-Star break. Max Scherzer is already back. There's still issues with the team. But the idea of going into the back stretch of the season with DeGrom and Scherzer on top of it, I think that they will fix some of the issues that they have with their lineup just offensively. Um, I, you know, they certainly have the money to do it. And I think that this year they seem to be committed in a way that they haven't been in some time. But just having those two guys there, even if they didn't improve the lineup, I think makes them, you know, a team that theoretically could win the World Series, which. I mean, I don't know when the last time I felt like I could say that about the Mets reasonably, including 2015 when they were literally in the World Series. There was a part of me that was just sort of like, well, this is fun, uh, but don't expect anything. Interesting discussion on the podcast this week about uh, what you referred to as the bifurcation of 
particularly college football, the big time ranks. It looks like we're headed for maybe a couple of super conferences, uh, one where they pretend that academics is important and, and one where they're just right up front about it. Yeah, that is kind of the, I mean, I guess in some ways it makes sense that that would be what it would come down to because, I mean, the Big Ten has this sort of self-image, the whole like legends and leaders pomposity. And I guess the, what you can say for the SEC is that they don't pretend to care about that. Right. That like what they what they care about is like calling into Paul Feinbaum's radio show waiting on hold for 90 minutes and then crying about Michigan state football or Mississippi state football. And that's fine. You know, like that's, everybody's got their own things. I'm not going to kink shame SEC fans here on the radio in Maine, but the (laughs) idea of like a 22 team big 10 conference or, uh, you know, a version of the SEC that includes um, Arizona state or whatever is just, it's bizarre enough to be kind of funny to me still, I do feel like once the dust settles and we're left with maybe three conferences, all of which are effectively so big that not every team can even play each other over the course of a year, then, you know, I don't know who exactly benefits from that. I mean, I do know who benefits from that, that like there's big TV deals. So, um, you know, administrators and, you know, the people that get paid three quarters of a million dollars to like run the sugar bowl, all of those people will make money off of it. I don't know exactly what it offers fans exactly. And it sure seems clear to me that it's not any good for the players. I mean, the idea, I know they're not doing it for basketball reasons, but when the big 10 incorporates USC and Rutgers has to go play in Los Angeles on a Tuesday night and then fly back, it's hard to say that that's, you know, it doesn't do much for me, although I probably will watch the basketball game because I'm an idiot, but those kids shouldn't have to fly six and a half hours to go you know, lose to Andy Enfield's team. Like, what do you get from that? Yeah, I wonder, too, uh, in football, and I've thought this for a while, whether you won't see a situation where those lower-level FBS conferences, the Sun Belt and Conference USA, mm-hmm. uh, whether they end up combining with the elite FCS conferences like Maine's, the CAA, the Big Sky, um, the Missouri Valley, and all those, and, and become sort of a, a second tier. Like this year, I'm broadcasting Maine games. We open up in Albuquerque, New Mexico against the Lobos, who, who are terrible, and, and Maine's got a pretty good chance to maybe go out there and win that game. There's not a big difference between the upper echelon FCS teams and those bottom-of-the-pack FBS teams. Yeah, there isn't. And I think that that's sort of, if there's anything good that, that comes out of this, I think it's not for necessarily the, the players or the teams in the big conferences. I guess you could say that it's better for them because, you know, as uh, Ben Mathis Lilly pointed out on the podcast, that it's like effectively if you're Michigan, you're replacing Middle Tennessee State on your schedule with UCLA, mm. like, which is, you know, that's good for fans, for fans of teams in those smaller conferences though, that like, if they can just sort of detach themselves from the, like the big money apparatus at the very top of the sport and work on actually delivering something that is, you know, maybe just a better product then you know, that, I think could be a win. It's just hard because I think that there is, and this is the real sort of bifurcation in it, is that like there's billion dollar TV contracts for some. And then, you know, when you're dealing with CAA teams that it's, you know, 
at that point, you just get what you can get. And mm-hmm. especially, you know, in a world of where there's austerity everywhere under that billion dollar class, but these are, you know, these are public universities, then, you know, it's hard to, you'd have to get really creative to get through that without seeing a sort of a diminished product, I think. All right. I've, I've waited till the end to bring this up. Uh, what, what does it mean that the best option out there in the world of politics uh, for the Republican Party is Ron DeSantis, whose claim to fame is he's Trump without all of the baggage. So, I mean, in some ways, I guess the only difference, I think, between DeSantis and and Trump really is that DeSantis, like, seemed like a guy that tried hard in school. That, like, Trump is is way weirder than just about anybody else in the United States. And... DeSantis is, like, in a lot of ways, a, a perfectly bog-standard Republican. Like, he's just kind of a weird little weaselly Harvard guy in a suit that doesn't fit right. There's a lot of those out there. The difference, I think, is that he's willing to apply himself like to—I mean, I think he would have—had there been a different standard-bearer for the party, and if it was, like, Mitt Romney's party, Ron DeSantis would be saying exactly the same things that Mitt Romney is saying. But as it is, mm. because there is this, like— deranged fey real estate tycoon with fascist characteristics setting the pace for that party, then DeSantis is just going to do that. But because he's a grind and because he is a guy who's chasing an A, he's actually going to follow through on it in a way that I think that Trump really couldn't or wouldn't. And I mean, like, Trump was serious about what he was serious about, but all he was really serious about was himself. I mean, I think that, like, the idea, like, he would tip over every institution that holds up American civil society just so he wouldn't have to admit that he got his ass beat by Joe Biden in an election. <laughs> but it wasn't because he had like unfinished business in the White House. No. He just couldn't handle it. Exactly. Whereas I think that DeSantis does have a program and it is like strikingly anti-human and cruel. And I think that he actually, uh, you know, would want to follow through on it. How he somehow winds up seeming like the less dangerous of those two guys is uh, something that I, well, whatever. <laughs> Obviously, we'll have plenty of time to think and talk about. Well, so let me ask you this, and I, I, I hate to end on a serious note, but uh, how do we, as I, I think, relatively normal, right-thinking people in America, how do we stay positive in the face of uh, all that's going on, a, a radical court, a minority exerting ridiculous power because we have a completely incompetent majority? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think that the challenging part about it for me, and I I mean, I wish I could just give you an answer right off the top of my head. I have not had a good time staying positive with it. I've had a really difficult time thinking about any of it. I think that the short answer that I can give you is that, like, the stuff that works at the local level, you know, and not just necessarily in terms of elected politics, but just in terms of the way that people mostly are, that that is, is still there. So, building with people, working with people that like, you know, in terms of, for me, I mean, the thing that I relied on when I was still, you know, working in union shops at like the various different sites that I've been at was that was feeling like just finding some place where you can feel like you can build power and advocate for the things that are important to you. And that is necessarily going to be a smaller scale, you know, and, Finding that spot, wherever it is and however it works, whatever like sort of community uh, you can find and try to improve, 
that's important. I mean, I think it seems like the most important thing. The hardest part about it, though, is that it doesn't feel like enough. And I think that that, you know, I don't know what to do with that necessarily. I mean, I feel like I've been very frustrated with the lack of urgency and presence on the part of the Democratic mm. Party at the national level. You know, and in my state, I know it's different everywhere, but I mean that in New York, it's very much machine driven and it's very corrupt and it's also very unaccountable for those reasons. So that's bad. And I don't, you know, just voting isn't enough to feel good about any of that, especially because you're invariably voting, you know, it's like defensive driving, you know, like it feel, <laughs> right. like in many cases, you're really voting for anything that you're that excited about. But I do think that there is like, there's a sort of latent promise in how crappy this moment is, because I think mm. that there's no way to be under the illusion that any of this is under command right now. You know, that like there, there isn't, there are people that you can see that are doing a better job or worse job. You know, there are governors that are effective. There's, you know, people in the house and people in the Senate that seem to be advocating forcefully and, you know, in a clear way for real things, but the rest of it doesn't work anymore. And I think it's like, if you can see what, the GOP wants. And I think that that's a scary thing to see. And you can see what they're willing to do to sort of force it on everybody, even though, you know, the system that we have can't ever give them the majorities that they'd need to do it legitimately. Once you get all that, then you can see what needs to be done. And it's like the doing of it is hard and the conceiving of it is very hard because it, it does require more than, you know, voting and, and sort of doing your duty. And I don't know exactly what shape that all will take yet, but uh, at the very least, I feel like people are awake now. Mm. Um, but of course it's like, you know, it's scarier when you're awake because you know, you're not dreaming. Like, and that, uh, yeah, I wish I had an answer to that. Can I ask how you are personally bearing up with that? Like what, well, is, what yeah. is, what's working for rich? You know, I, I think you're right. You just bring it all closer to home. And, and I think too, there's, you have to, you have to get outside and summer's good for that and, and talk to people and, and be reminded again of what we know, but we sometimes forget that that social media world is not real world. And that, that even the yeah. people who will sometimes say some things that, that make you want to clench your fists in a social media setting might also be the people who will help you out when you get a flat tire or will help you carry that heavy box out of the grocery store. So th there's more good than bad out there. And I guess I'm, I'm hanging my hat on that. I think that's absolutely right. You know, a, a really good point that I saw somebody make about social media the other day, because I also have found it when I'm here and I'm on it, it's deranging. And when I was in Maine and I was carrying boxes around, I wasn't looking at my phone and I felt better just for the removal of that, just right, pure addition right. by subtraction. But the other point that I saw about it that I thought made sense is that, you know, absorbing bad news through social media, which is mostly what, I mean, I do with it. Bad news is mostly the news that we have, but that, that it's the part of it that is worse. And I mean, obviously the news itself can be very bad, but also you're getting it after it happens. Like you are right. not seeing what's coming next. You're just watching this churn as stuff gets sort of pushed further out of the cycle, further out of mind by some other bad new thing, which is always coming. And that is like, it's like trying to drive by looking in the rear view mirror, you know, like you can't see that, like there are things that haven't happened yet. <laughs> and mm. 
those are going to be the things that are going to matter one way or the other. And it, this tendency to sort of focus on the bad things that either, you know, as they happen or that have just happened, it's not just that it's unhelpful, you know, because you can't make them unhappen, but it's like, it's bad for you. It's just going to make you feel bad. I need to do a better job taking my own advice on that. Uh, but I, I think that's something that I'm going to try to sort of focus on the touching grass agenda for the summer. I'm feeling better already. And, and if all else fails, I'm going to dress up like a Siamese cat. Wait, what, how bad could it be? Right. At the very least, you know that Bob Euchre will accept it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, David, always a treat to talk with you. Thank you, my friend. We'll do it again soon. Appreciate you, man. Thanks very much. Hang in there. That's David Roth here on Downtown, the podcast. Quick word from our good people at Cross Insurance. And when we return, actor Derek's Brady of the Bounce TV series, Johnson. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back on Downtown, the podcast. Our next guest is an actor, producer, and director whose star is on the Bounce TV series, Johnson, which just began season two this past weekend. We had a terrific time talking with the multi-talented Derek's Brady here on Downtown. Derek's, thank you so much for being with us. Hello, thank you for having me. Man, I love the show. It's such a great idea from uh, executive producer Cedric the Entertainer. For anybody who doesn't know, can you lay out the premise of Johnson? Sure. Um, Johnson's about four kids that lined up on the blacktop in elementary in alphabetical order. We, uh, <laughs> and uh, we all found out that we had the same last name, Johnson, but no relation. And we just went from friends to family to brothers. Um, and, you know, fast forward, we navigate through life now that we're adults, um, encouraging each other, lifting each other up as we uh, try to find our way and put a footprint on life and not just exist. Um, and so that comes with us encouraging each other as well as challenging each other. It's an amazing show. We do it a lot of different dynamics as well as make you laugh. Yeah, it's great. I mean, there's a lot of comedy, laugh-out-loud comedy, and some pretty intense drama, too. And it's just a great study of how people change over the course of 25 years. And yet with you guys, you've managed to keep that friendship intact somehow. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're all in different, you know, different places of life. Uh, my character, Jarvis uh, Johnson is married. Um, uh, there's another character, Omar, uh, uh, Omar, who's played by Thomas Q. Jones. He's actually going through a divorce and uh, fighting for his family in a custody battle. And then we have my, my friend, uh, Greg, Greg Johnson, who uh, is trying to figure out if he's going to move in with his girl, or is this something that's over, or is he over his ex? And then we have a, uh, then it's Keith Johnson, played by Philip Smitty, and he is trying to figure out if he could just get a girl. So we're all in different <laughs> places of life. Yeah, it's it's a great study, and you guys have terrific chemistry 
together. Obviously, some writing is involved in that and some great acting, but but some of that has to come naturally to you guys uh, seem to really feed off each other very well as actors. Yeah, you know what's awesome is that we first did this, we did a, a pilot about five and a half years ago, almost six years ago now. Um, Deji and Thomas, who are the showrunner of our show, Deji and Lorray created the show, and we did it on, on their dime. We did a pilot, we all came on board for free, and then they shopped it around, and finally, you know, it got picked up by Bounce. So it gave us like five years to really build a brotherhood. So what you see on screen is how it is off screen. We're totally connected with each other and go on vacations together and, um, you know, go out of the country together. And so the chemistry is really there and it gave us time to really develop that brotherhood that you see on screen. I also uh, love the way uh, that the series uses uh, D.L. Hughley's character to really tie things together. You know, D.L. Hughley is amazing. I mean, first of all, he plays Uncle Eugene. And he's, he's hilarious, but he also gives us advice. You know, once you're, you know, as an adult, you kind of start walking into your path and, and you start figuring out like, okay, I don't really know nothing, which means I have some experience and some knowledge. But what DL does is he gives it from another point of view and takes, you know, gives us an example and gives us experience to a whole nother level that really makes us think. And he's just hilarious. And I mean, how many times can you say that on your, on your series, you have two legends of, uh, kings of comedy, right? With Cedric the Entertainer and D.L. Hughley, we're just blessed. And one of my favorite scenes of season one is uh, after Omar's custody hearing, when he stops by to see Eugene, and that great conversation in the studio uh, with uh, with Eugene and Omar and the producer, and talking about relationships between black men and black women, and it's really a wonderful, thoughtful, and powerful scene. Yeah, you know, th that's something that they do, you know, uh, Deji and Thomas really in the vision of the show. Uh, it, it's really great and having deal there. You know, it's a lot of times when you see African-American men on TV, there's kind of a couple of stereotypes that are often used, right? And so what they did, you know, in Deji creating the show is he wanted to create a balance. And when Philip and I came on board, we wanted to be participating in that. And so... You know, when I look around at the guys that I know in my life, uh, African-American men, you know, a lot of them are not those stereotypes. They're college graduates. They're entrepreneurs. They're engaged fathers with their kids. They're married. They're, 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 they're not just simply floating but trying to build a legacy that goes way beyond themselves. And so that's what is happening on Johnson. These are the cousins and uncles and friends that we know. And it's just awesome to be able to give a balance and for audiences to tune in and really show up for us. We're talking with Derek's Brady. Season two of Johnson premieres on July 10th on Bounce TV. I accessed it through Amazon Prime. There are a lot of different ways to get it, but it's uh, well worth your time and energy there. So your character, Jarvis, from the get-go, seemingly has things pretty well together. You mentioned he's married, his life is going well, he gets a new job, and then all of a sudden, things take a turn late in season one and, and what a, a great opportunity as an actor to really dig into some, some powerful moments in those last couple of episodes in particular. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I was honored that, um, you know, I, this is the material that I got to do. I mean, quite as kept, you know, a lot of times when I've played characters in the past that are successful or, 
are having their own company. They're either kind of boring or they're kind of like goofy a little bit. But, <laughs> but playing Jarvis has been awesome because he's the first. It's the first time that I have been able to play a character that is highly intelligent, owns his own brokerage, very successful in the mortgage industry, and at the same time he has a lot of swag. So I love that. Um, but yeah, you know, we really went into some more intense depth topics towards the end of the season. And um, it was just really an honor to play that. And I, I felt like Daisy and Thomas really trusted me with that character and that I could bring it in. So I was honored to do that. Boy, that season one finale is just a, a gut punch. Uh, you left us with a great cliffhanger heading into season two. But uh, And I don't want to give too much away. No spoilers. I want people to make sure they watch it. But as an actor, how did you prepare for that big scene uh, at the end of episode 10? Well, you know, that was huge. It was it was great because, you know, for Jarvis, it's, his environment has kind of changed with the circle that he's around, aside from mm. his brothers, you know, his friends that are like his brothers. But he, he's lost a little pulse of what's going on. You know, for him, a lot of times where his friends are complaining about, you know, the way things are happening, with whether it be with police or the way they're being profiled, Jarvis hasn't really dealt with that as much. So he kind of in his perspective is like, what are you guys talking about? Like you're looking for that. But in, in, in that finale scene, he ends up getting pulled over with his wife without giving too much away. And he runs into some situations with the police that he felt equally that he didn't have to do. And they felt like, no, you do have to do. And so it, I had to really take on the responsibility of what I felt that experiences that I've had to deal with. Some of my friends have had to deal with, um, and and take that in and, and give everything that I had. I remember we shot that scene for about four and a half hours, and there's one of the producers on our show, Risha Archibald. After we were done shooting, um, I saw her in the hotel room. Everybody was gone. It was just she and I in the hallway. And all she said to me was, are you okay? And I literally broke down. And I like for maybe three minutes, I just five, three, five minutes, I just cried getting it all out because I really tried to live that scene. I didn't want to play it. I knew a responsibility that I had. And so it was really important that we got it right. And I, so I gave everything to myself and I just had nothing left. And her just asking me one question, all the emotions that I had from filming for the last four hours, it just came out. Um, but it's a very powerful thing. And I thank you for your words on it. Yeah, it paid off because it is a tremendous scene. Now, I know uh, you're a big a believer in the Meisner method. So how do, you, uh, how do you immerse yourself? How do you block out everything else to get into that moment? You know, I really appreciated the cast and the crew. Um, you know, Gino Brooks, uh, writer-director, wrote that episode. Deji Lorraine directed that episode. And I remember he just was like... He, I just went off to my own self. I had earphones on. I really didn't speak to anybody um, except for the times where he was giving me direction or instructions. Um, and uh, I just stayed to myself and I listened to, to the song Glory, uh, you know, by um, uh, John. Oh, who's it? Why am I going blank on him? Um, man, I can't remember. I'm going, I'm going blank for some reason. <laughs> but I listened to the song Glory over and over and over and it just really got me in the place of uh, emotionally what I needed to go to be able to draw from. Um, and so that's how I got into it. And, and, you know, another thing is we were doing a scene, and I remember with the police, uh, one of the actors, Donnie, uh, you know, plays uh, one of the police officers, and he was kind of taking it easy on me. And I said, hey, listen, we, we have an opportunity here to really give a different perspective for, for people that might not 
know how things and quickly things can go. So I was like, don't, we're not acting right now. We're going to live. I'm, I'm okay. I can mm. take it. But I'll tell you what, Rich, like he, <laughs> there was one thing, there was one tape where he, he slammed my head on the car and I was like, yeah, you're, uh, <laughs> you're, you're living it. <laughs> you're living it. <laughs> was it the, uh, was it the John Legend song with common that glory? That, that's it. John Legend. I remember John, yeah, John Legend, um, and common that song that actually won an Oscar. That song I just ran in my earphones just over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And um, and I stayed to myself and didn't speak to anybody. And that's how I was able to get into that place. Well, we've enjoyed your work on uh, so many things through the years. Do you look at uh, any day now as uh, you're really a yeah. big break in the business? That was, yeah, that was like my first big break. You know, um, I got to work with Eddie Potts and Olivia Freeman is who I played. You know, we were teenagers and you know, I played her boyfriend and Lorraine Toussaint. Um, you know, I was acting with legends on that show and it was my first show. So I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, <laughs> I looked at this for the first couple episodes and I was like, man, how did they beat me? But, um, but the great thing is that I knew how at that time, I just knew how to take other people's words and then just believe them and make them mine. Um, and so that was the quality that they, they gave me that job on. And I ended up, we broke up after two episodes, but they brought me back. Um, and I ended up doing two and a half more years on that show. And it was an amazing experience. And, uh, even after that show, when I went on to my very next, uh, acting job, uh, playing Rocky Carroll's son on the district, or no, it was the agency. Uh, Annie Potts actually went over the sides with me and helped me dig in and find the important points. And, uh, I went and booked that job. So. Uh, we were a really great family on that show. What was the experience like working with Al Pacino? What did you take away from that? You know, that was my introduction really into like the method acting. Like that's when I first kind of was like, okay, he's doing something different. It's not just I'm living these lines in between action and cut. You know, the first day he was playing a down and out director in that movie, Simone. And uh, we were like these cult followers that would follow him wherever he would go and watch his film. And we just loved his work. And so that day we were filming, he was vacuuming his own red carpet. He thought no one was going to show up. And I saw him come on set and he was kind of stumbling and had his head down and kind of wasn't, he dressed a little sloppy. And I was like, wow, I was like, is he, is that what you don't drink? I'm like, what is he, what's going on? <laughs> and then we, we did the scene where he felt, totally insecure and that no one believed in him. And then, so the next day we filmed the scene where he saw everybody in the theaters and everybody was watching, everybody showed up and he was like, he had pep in his step. And I said, Hey, Al, and he waved his hey. And it was so interesting. Like that's when I first saw like, wow, he's living out his day. And then he, he ends up just filming scenes. And uh, that was my introduction to method and to Meisner. And that I just took it on and never did anything different after. What different skills uh, do you get to tap into when you uh, step out of your acting role and become a producer? I, 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 it's interesting because even as a producer, although you're not in front of the camera, you still feel expressive because you've studied the script so much. You've pulled so many pieces together to get this film made. And then you know the tone, really, really understand the tone because the director that came on board is a director that you've either chosen or decided that to work on their work, but you know the tone. So it was amazing as a producer, I really saw how 
Uh, you think it seems like the see like the director is the captain of the ship, but the producer is the pace of the ship. The producer is who helps things keep going and puts fires out and is thinking proactively of what's the next day and making sure that everybody is cohesive on set. So um, that was something where I just as you know as a as a as a as a brother as a as a father. Um, as a husband, I've learned to to have my resources and make them work together, and so that we're a team. And that's what I did as a producer. And so uh, I really love um, having that expressive expression as well from just acting. I, I like bringing people together that can collectively, cohesively work together for the same mission, and that is just really appetizing and fun for me. Now, am I correct in uh, in giving your mom credit for? Stoking the love of movies and television by taking you to double features as a kid? You know what? Yes. I mean, I remember, like, you know, as a little kid, I remember watching TV with my mom all the time. But then I remember, like, when I would go outside, this is when, like, you always had to check in, like, every 30 minutes, even though you were on the <laughs> same block. And and um, I remember coming in sometimes on days where my friends might have been gone or went to some somewhere else with their parents. And I remember coming in, in and out, and my, I remember my mom would just say, you know what, just come sit down. Just watch this with me. And I'd be so frustrated and angry. I didn't want to watch this movie. And at the end of the movie, I just would ask her a million questions because I so fell in love with it. And, you know, we would also go to, like, double features. And uh, I, I, I saw Lost Boys with my mom, and we would go and stay at the theater for hours. Um, and I just loved it. We never got tired of it. So she really introduced me to cinema. She introduced me to TV, and um, there's no doubt of the impact that it had and why I'm telling stories today, because I saw these amazing stories as a kid with her. What are some of the stories that uh, you still look forward to telling as a producer, director, or an actor? You know, uh, I'm working on, on, on one of the stories that I'm working on with my producing partner, M.B. Walton. We, we uh, created Skyscope Pictures. We wanted to have a production company that gave a voice to the voiceless that uh, was able to um, give perspectives for marginalized communities. And we also wanted to tell unique stories with a commercial appeal that could also entertain you while still giving you a perspective that maybe you, before the movie, didn't have and you could see from a different angle. And so we're working on this film called uh, Michael. It's a, uh, an MMA story, a mixed martial arts story about uh, a deaf father who uh, loses his, his son to foster care and loses his wife through tragic events, and so he tries to fight his way back into the ring to uh, fight his way out of poverty and regain custody of his son. And it's an amazing story. We're really focused on that. Um, our actor, our lead actor, Michael Anthony Spady, uh, he really is deaf, um, so uh, the disability is not just something we're faking. And, um, and, and we did it as a short. We got 19 nominations and critical acclaim, and we won 14 awards. The short stalled Harold starred Harold Perrineau from Claws, and he's got a new show on FX, and it's Tina Wesley from Clean Sugar and True Blood, and it also starred Lawrence Gilliard from The Deuces and The Wire, and it was an amazing short, and so uh, my producing partner, M.D. Walton, has now worked on the feature, and we've been blessed to be at our director of taxes, uh, the Anthony Hemingway, who uh, is showrunner and uh, you know, producer director of Genius that just came out about Aretha Franklin's story. Mm. Uh, he also he also was part of the Emmy award winning People vs. OJ, uh, and uh, he also did the Unsolved story uh, about uh, Biggie and Tupac. And so 
he just tells really amazing stories. And so he's our director. We've been developing the story over the last three and a half years. And so we're getting really close. Hopefully by the end of this year, we're going to be able to make some major announcements star-wise as well as studio-wise. And so we're excited. It's an amazing story, and we just can't wait to share it. Well, that's fantastic. Well, we wish you much luck with that continued success. I can't wait for Saturday and Season 2 of Johnson on Bounce TV. Uh, Derek Brady, congratulations on the great work in Season 1 and all you do, and thanks so much for visiting with us. Really appreciate you having me. Uh, thank you so much. I had so much fun uh, talking to you. And, yes, it, it is July 10th, this Sunday, 8, 7 Central, for the West Coast, it's 5 p.m. on Bounce TV. So I'm excited for everybody to tune in. Last season, we broke, everyone showed up for us, and we debuted the highest-rated dramedy series, half-hour dramedy series for Bounce TV. And so we're looking forward to all the audiences coming in and seeing what we're doing for season two. I can't wait to see what happens to Jarvis. I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rich. I appreciate it. Thanks, Derek. Be well. Okay, you too. That's Derek's Brady from the Bounce TV series. Johnson with us on downtown. Our thanks to Derek's. Thank you to David Roth and, of course, to you for joining us this week. Appreciate you joining us here on downtown. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time right here on downtown.